Hi, everyone. My name is Peter Caldas. I'm the CEO of the American Society on Aging. And as part of ASA's transformation, uh, we've launched lots of podcasts like Future Proof, which highlights innovation in aging, Generations Bylines, which talks to authors in aging. And today I'm particularly excited uh, to be recording our inaugural episode of our newest podcast called Leverage, which is going to be all about the politics of aging. This show will focus on politics, policy, and advocacy in aging. And today I'm joined by Dr. Leanne Clark Shirley, ASA's Vice President of Programs and Thought Leadership. Hi, Peter. I'm so excited that we're doing this. It's really timely and it's really needed. We're just a few months out from the election, as we all know, and there are just so many issues that we need to talk about. And these issues relate to how ASA's members and other people in the field and, of course, the constituencies that they work with, um, how, how they can set themselves up for a successful election in November. That's right. And, you know, too often when it comes to the policies of aging, it feels like our elected officials only talk about Social Security or Medicare when it comes to older adults. It just assumes that every person over a certain age is just the same. Right. And that's, frankly, an ageist perspective. Older adults, we know they're the most diverse group of people on the planet. And people like to talk about the elderly as if there's this imaginary group of people out there who all need and want the same things and who all need to be taken care of. But really, that's a myth. Social Security, Medicare, these other policies like that, are they're critical. They're essential to preserve. But we're more than just income and health care as we age. And that's why ASA is launching Leverage, right? So we want to not only raise awareness as to the universe of issues that are out there, but really empower everyone to then contact their elected officials and policymakers to demand we change the politics of aging. So, Leanne, I know you're going to help. So how is ASA going to help? Yeah, well, you know, we have a quite a bit with quite a bit planned between now and November 3rd. We're working on several episodes of this podcast, Leverage. We'll be covering voter suppression and voter engagement tactics, politics of mail vote, mail-in voting. We'll be exploring candidate platforms. And then ASA is also going to host two live virtual events, our beloved panel of pundits, which is moderated by Bob Blancato. That's That'll a good one. I'm on that one as well. Yeah, you are a pundit. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be coming up on September 8th. And then we also have our policy town hall sponsored by our esteemed policy committee. That one will be moderated by Jay Newton Small, and it'll happen on September 17th. Both of these events will be highly interactive and focused on very different but very critical policy issues. Uh, and we hope you'll join us for those. And then, of course, after the election, we'll keep the momentum going, pushing for policy and advocacy issues on behalf of older adults. Yeah, Bob Blancato and Jay Newton-Small have been such great supporters of the ASA, and I know that those two events are just going to be so interesting and timely. Uh, and speaking of timely, you're going to be seeing more and more action alerts from the ASA, uh, where we hope you'll feel empowered to mobilize to improve the policies on aging. And if you're an ASA member and want to join the Leverage podcast and our roundtable sessions, or you even have uh, policy issues that you'd like for us to tackle, just send us an email uh, to info at asaaging.org. 
So let's talk about today's episode. Um, Leverage is going to cover a variety of topics, but we figured for the first few episodes, we'd really focus on voting, as Leanne, you mentioned. So I think it's probably not well known, but it should be that older adults are critical to our democracy. They vote more than anyone else. They volunteer for campaigns. Um, They staff our polling stations, but it seems like some in power want to suppress that impact. And today on Leverage, uh, I interviewed Hillary Shelton from the NAACP on uh, voter suppression and, and how it impacts older adults. It was a great conversation. Yeah, and it's just, it's so timely. You interviewed him on August 6th, which was the 55th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. This is the law that enforces the 14th and the 15th Amendments and really protects all citizens' rights to vote. Um, This act prohibited any law that discriminated on the basis of uh, racial minority status and it ended literacy tests as a qualifier for being able to cast a vote. It's just crazy that we needed a law to enforce two constitutional amendments because bad states were just trying to suppress votes. And you mentioned you mentioned a couple of ways that they tried doing that, but also they had poll taxes. I mean, you mentioned literacy tests and a whole bunch of other nonsense. And then almost 50 years later, uh, after passing the Voting Rights Act, the Supreme Court basically said, "Okay, these states aren't being bad anymore. And they got rid of the law, the provision of the law that required states and other jurisdictions with a history of discrimination uh, to obtain approval from the U.S. DOJ before changing their voting rules. And this process was known as pre-clearance, and it blocked discrimination before it occurred. But the Supreme Court effectively eliminated pre-clearance and ushered in this new wave of efforts to restrict voting rights. Mm. It's insanity. Uh, But you don't have to take my word for it. The Brennan Center for Justice an independent nonpartisan think tank has studied this issue and it found that the states most likely to pass new voting restrictions were those with the highest African-American election turnout, those with the highest Hispanic population growth, and those formerly covered under what's known as Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. In other words, those quote-unquote bad states that prompted the need for this 55-year-old piece of legislation. And since the Supreme Court case, 14 states passed new restrictive voting laws in effect for the first time. Uh, Six were previously covered by the Voting Rights Act, and Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina, Texas, and Virginia have now new voter ID laws in place. Wow. I know the House tried to pass the Voting Rights Act, uh, which tries to fix these issues, but the Senate is sitting on it. And, you know, many were hoping that in the wake of John Lewis's death, that the Senate would pass the bill. Now, we can all remember that John Lewis was nearly beaten to death simply because of his voter registration efforts. Right. Yeah. You know, and it's it strikes me that when this law was passed, people that were 18 at the time are now, what, 73, 74 today. So when you imagine voting over a lifetime and what has happened from the day that it was passed and to what's going to happen this November, it's it's just really timely that we were, we're talking about this. 
I'm so excited to kick this off. This is a great interview that you did with Hillary. And for our listeners, he offers practical tips on how all of us can fight voter suppression. So here we go, and we, we hope you enjoy it. We had more Americans come out and vote in 08 than any other time in the history of our country. But we also saw in poor and racial and ethnic minority communities, the lines lasting hours for so many people trying to cast that vote and make sure that indeed their voices were heard. Even as we see the weakening of the voting rights act, we're gonna to have to do a little bit more to make sure that every American is protected and is able to cast an unfettered vote and have it counted. In other words, it's a point of celebration and commemoration, but it's also a point of rededication to make sure that our democracy is able to be fully implemented. Hi, it's Peter Caldas again, and I'm delighted to be joined by Hillary O'Shelton, uh, who is the director to the NAACP's Washington Bureau and senior vice president for advocacy and policy. On behalf of the NAACP, the most widely recognized civil rights organization, Hillary advocates on critical issues like access to comprehensive health care, civil rights enforcement, and voting rights protection, which is what we'll be talking about today on Leverage. Hillary, welcome to Leverage. Peter, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So I am just delighted to be talking to you today. Uh, as I was reading over uh, your bio, it's clear to me you were integral to the crafting and final passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1991 and other key legislation, including the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act. And as you know, today we're recording our interview on August 6th, which of course is the 55th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. I'm wondering if you can maybe just reflect on the anniversary of this seminal piece of legislation and sort of what it what it means to you. Oh, this is an extraordinary time. It, it uh, actually points out an understanding of the problems we were having even with voting in the United States of America. As you probably know, under the Reconstruction Amendments to the Constitution, clarifications were made about the rights of citizenship for all Americans, including those of former servitude or those who have been enslaved in the country. And from that point, the 15th Amendment made it very clear that even those of former servitude, those former slaves, were now free. And as such, the right for them to vote was heavily protected as it should be. The challenge, of course, between the uh, 1870s and the um, and the Voting Rights Act passage in 1965 was extraordinary. That is, if you look uh, on websites across the country, any place, you'll see just how problematic things still were. That even as much as the Constitution guaranteed that right, that right was not protected, was not enforced by so many millions of African Americans and others across our country. So as I sit on this day, I think about how far we've come and how many African-Americans have been able to participate in the process and how that's uh, worked for so many other Americans of various races, ethnicities, points of national origin and, and other differences. Uh, but I also think, again, how as hard work as went into passing that, that act in 1965, that the Supreme Court just a few years ago actually passed a measure that weakened the the, uh, uh, the, the preclearance provisions within the Voting Rights Act 
So as much as I'm delighted with the advantages and the things we've been able to accomplish over the years of full participation for all Americans, including those of African descent, I recognize that as we look towards this very important election coming up in November, that we still have to work very hard to make sure those protections are enforced. And of course, now, even as we see the weakening of the Voting Rights Act, we're going to have to do a little bit more to make sure that every American is protected and is able to cast that unfettered vote and have it counted. In other words, it's a point of celebration and commemoration, but it's also a point of rededication to make sure that our democracy is able to be fully implemented. You know, President Barack Obama tweeted about the anniversary today as well, and he called it one of the crowning achievements of our democracy. But he, too, shares your concern Hillary, about how the Supreme Court case, which effectively made it uh, easier for certain states to uh, pass stricter ID laws and close polling places and purge voter rolls and a bunch of other horrific things, uh, has basically weakened the Voting Rights Act. And I'm, and I'm hoping we can dive into some of the practical issues of those today during our conversation. No, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. And I'm flattered to know that uh, the former president and I are in the same accord. Um, <laughs> not that I disagree with him over much of anything, <laughs> but it's, it's great to hear it's coming from uh, from his pulpit as well. That's right. So let's let's talk a little bit about the practical practical effects of having weekend uh, the Voting Rights Act. So let's start with some basics here. Um you know, we're in the midst of a pandemic, and I'm wondering if you just have some observations on how you think the pandemic might influence voting this November. Well, there's a lot to be concerned about with something that is as contagious as this pandemic. And, of course, it's disproportionate impact on those Americans that are usually counted on the most strongly to come out and participate in our election, of course, and that is our retirees, our elderly and others. If you look at the numbers, they've always turned out in the biggest numbers and concerns. But if you look at the impact of the coronavirus pandemic, what we're seeing is something that has actually killed people disproportionately. It's affected people across the country disproportionately as well. But the two largest victims that have died as a result are first, the elderly, and secondly, within that line, the elderly of African-American and, uh, and uh, racial ethnic minority descent. So in essence, it's a very dangerous thing now to look at who usually participates in, of course, the fear we have to be concerned about. And all you have to do is look at the numbers of um, retirement homes, for that matter, that have been so heavily affected, and look at the overall numbers of those that have sadly passed away as a result. So thinking about it in those terms, uh, people, our, our older Americans, have to be very thoughtful and be very careful. As a matter of fact, as we come upon this, it also means as we're looking at some of the options and alternatives that are being discussed, we have to be very thoughtful and very careful as well. So one ballots. of those options, that's right, yeah, our mail-in ballots. And I'm wondering if you could share some observations on uh, the the numbers related to how people of color vote uh, and vote by mail. No, very good. Well, you know, the places that actually have vote by mail are primary uh, are just a few states overall, and African Americans participate in very high numbers uh, in those states uh, as well. However, as we look at across the country and the need for it, we know that many African Americans will want to be able to have every option to 
be able to cast that unfettered vote and have it counted. So being thoughtful and careful again, number one, we want to make sure we don't run into mail slash voting fraud concerns as larger states uh, open up and decide to utilize this as a tool. It seems like an easy fix, but it's something we're going to have to be very careful of to prevent any unscrupulous activities. And sadly, as we look at what happened in our 2016 election and the international interference in the elections coming from Russia and a couple of other places, we know that we want to be more careful there. And certainly, as we're thinking about more broadly using something like mail-in uh, voting, that we have all the protections in place to secure that every American that's going to be utilizing it is able to cast that vote, make sure that it gets to the point of being counted and it's counted in good time. And that we don't find that they've, that uh, quite frankly, America's votes end up being lost in the mail <laughs> to borrow a term. So we want to be careful uh, as we think about this issue. It's something that is quite doable. We have to think about reinforcing our postal system to make sure that it can manage something along these lines that, again, is so crucial to our democracy itself. Hillary, you brought up the issue of voter fraud, and I know it's the topic of uh, concern. Uh, it may, in some cases, though, be a little overstated, right? I understand that the Heritage Foundation, which is a conservative think tank, has uh, a wonderful study, actually, on the frequency of voter fraud in our elections going back several years. And I think it's fair to say that it is so slight and the numbers are so small such that they're almost statistically irrelevant. So uh, fraud seems to be a bit of a, a red herring here. What do you think about that? Well, I, I think if we look at the numbers that you're talking about prior to today, the answer is we've done a, a pretty good job, I think, as a nation of preventing voter fraud as much as possible. And you're right. When we think of some types of voter fraud, the issue is bigger or smaller. And one a good example is people think about voter fraud as a reason to actually require uh, things like photo IDs issued only by the state government certified and otherwise to be able to go and vote. We know as we've looked at data along those lines, you're absolutely right. Voter fraud has been minuscule uh, when it comes to that type of voting processes and, of course, what ends up happening in the final analysis. It's a huge deal. And one of the reasons that, that we oppose the very stringent photo ID policies that are in place. On the other hand, what we're talking about today is a process that we want to change in a lot of states. That is, we are in the month of August. Uh, our election is in the month of November. We're talking about actually uh, in a, almost a wholesale way, opening up our mailing system to be able to allow people to cast that vote get it through the mail to the place where it needs to be counted and have it counted. So as much as under the present circumstance, not with only a few states utilizing mail-in ballots, um, you're absolutely right about the, the data that's coming in around voter fraud, and we have to be very realistic along those lines. As we think about making changes, as we're moving into the season now where people are registering in, a heavy, in heavy numbers, we're moving towards the election itself, we just have to make sure that we do everything in our power to address the issue of uh, protecting that vote as we move towards utilizing new systems for casting that vote. Can we talk a little bit more about voter ID issues? And I, and I know that the voter ID um, is an issue for people of color 
but I'm wondering why. Could you explain that? Oh, sure, sure. It's a big deal for people of color, but economics plays a big role in photo IDs as well as age. Uh, as you know, as um, if we think about people of color, if you look at the at income, uh, as a comparison as well, you see uh, African-Americans and um, Native Americans, Latinos are disproportionately poor. If you look at value, wealth, income, and other very important issues along those lines. So it's important for thinking about photo IDs. You think about who actually had them. That is the state government certified ones. Well, most of them are certified for people that uh, drive. Your driver's license is one of the most accepted uh, photo IDs across the country in pretty much every state. But if you're poor and don't and can't afford a car, then you're less likely to get a driver's license. Um, as we get older, um, many people stop driving for health reasons and otherwise and whatnot, so they, they're not renewing their driver's license. Um, as a result, in many of those cases, we have to make sure that, that our retirees, our older Americans, have the photo IDs that they need, and we don't make it too awfully hard for them to get it. Sadly, we've seen circumstances in a number of states as people have retired and moved from one place to the other, where, for instance, free photo IDs were promised to retirees. And when they went to the uh, motor vehicle uh, office, which is most often used place to get uh, state IDs, they found they end up waiting around for four hours. As much as the governor promised them, uh, they end up having to stay in several lines to be able to get the free ID. As a matter of fact, in one place in Tennessee, uh, we got a report that as the elderly couple uh, went in to get their photo IDs, they just retired and moved from Iowa uh, to Tennessee, that they told them if they pay for it, they could give it to them right away. But they wanted it free. Nobody really knew how to do that, though they recognized the promise. They would have to wait around uh, with their special needs daughter. Uh, it ended up taking them almost five hours. Uh, to get everything taken care of and to get the ID they needed. This also goes back to the issue you were raising before, and that is the issue of how much fraud takes place as somebody's pretending to be someone they, they're they not, and that photo ID becomes a very helpful tool. And what we found is that states that were actually signing photo ID laws in a place as we look back 5, 10, even 20 years, we may have found one, even two cases of voter fraud in which someone pretended to be someone else. So in essence, as we think about the need, as we talk about whether photo IDs are helpful, whether they're not, whether to sit there attestation is enough. Look, I live in the nation's capital. Here in Washington, D.C., uh, you do not have to have a photo ID to be able to vote. You go into your polling site. They ask you a couple of questions about where you live. You sign on the line next to the signature that was sent to them and included in your registration information. Go and take it and take care of everything and vote. We have not had problems, um, again, with voter fraud in which people are pretending to be someone that they're not. If we also look at the cost, and this is, I think, something fascinating that was said by our former attorney general, that is Eric Holder, as the uh, as the Shelby versus Holder decision, which was the decision that said that um, the preclearance section would not be applied because 4B, which was the provision in the Voting Rights Act that determines who's covered, was antiquated and needed to be updated. As they were going through the process of looking at uh, what was really going on, what they determined is that the same states 
that had tried to pass a change the law, that is, those who were covered by the preclearance section of the Voting Rights Act, like Texas, South Carolina, and there were others, but more specifically Texas and South Carolina as this example. Uh, after the uh, Department of Justice's voting rights section finished reviewing their proposal to utilize photo IDs, they recognized that what was going to happen was going to actually cut out significant numbers of African Americans as they do not have photo IDs at that time. But the thing that he said was most fascinating was that that means that in most states, you have to pay for that photo ID for no other reason than being able to vote. And in most states, that photo ID ran between 30 and $55. In essence, what he said is, we, th we thought that a poll tax, which was something that was utilized to discriminate against voters uh, prior to the Voting Rights Act, poll taxes were made illegal when Americans would have to pay a tax to be able to, to vote. But if you had to pay for a photo ID in order to vote, as he put it, a poll tax by any other name is still a poll tax. So photo IDs are still problematic. Uh, we believe they are unnecessary. Uh, again, as we look at the number of, of voter fraud cases that included someone pretending to be someone they're not, it was clear uh, that most Americans should be able to go to the polls, no ID, sign where they need to sign. And very well, um, if we find that they are, are are doing something they're not supposed to be doing, if they're involved in fraudulent behavior, then we will pursue it. But we've seen that that happens in very, very few, if, if any cases, in the last uh, five years. You know, strict voter ID laws uh, and sort of bring them back to life, if you will, uh, since that Supreme Court case is horrible and egregious, but I'm wondering if you could also talk about accessibility to polling places. Um, I know the numbers of polling places have disappeared, but just simple uh, access. And if you could talk a little bit about that as well. No, absolutely. As a matter of fact, we were just outraged as we watched first in excitement, the number of participants in the 2008 election grow in the manner that it did. That is, we had more Americans come out and vote in 08 than any other time in the history of our country uh, since we've been counting, which have been a little over 80 years getting a good assessment of who actually goes to the polls. Uh, but we saw the huge turnout of Americans come up, but we also saw in poor and racial and ethnic minority communities, the lines lasting hours for so many people trying to cast that vote and make sure that indeed their voices were heard. So in essence, we knew that there was a problem with the calculus along a couple of things. Number one is exactly where they're placing polling sites. And then secondly, are they putting the adequate number of voting machines in those polling sites so that people can get up a little early on that, that morning as they're going to work, cast their votes, and then head into the office? Are those who plan to come by after work and do the same thing? And we saw, thank goodness, in some places, even as the lines went on and on well after the, the uh, official voting time, they allowed those polling sites to stay open until everyone in the line could vote and those votes could be counted. We juxtaposed that to middle and upper middle class communities and beyond and saw not the same number of, um, of people waiting in line to get through. 
not spending the hours and hours to be able to go to, into the poll, cast their vote, and then make sure that vote was was counted and have the uh, flag sticker uh, to show for it. So in essence, we we knew that there were there are problems with that. Legislation has been introduced and actually has passed the House uh, here in Washington that would begin to help fix that problem. Uh, legislation that would actually utilize a calculus based on the number of people living in each uh, voting district of how many machines they need in each place so that as people are coming by, they will be able to get in and get out, making sure they're accessible. As we're thinking about it, everything from those who don't own cars uh, and going to a polling site that's not close to a bus stop or to a subway stop uh, and other issues along those lines. It needs to be addressed. People should not have to um, go way out of their way to be able to cast a vote to do something that is, you and I both know is so fundamental to our democracy itself. So we still need some adjustments and some fixes there. We've got a lot of good plans. We just need to get support from the government and the resources we need to implement them. Well, you sound optimistic, Hillary, and I'm wondering, what do you think the likelihood is of the Senate addressing the legislation that passed the House? You know, it's sad to say that in a couple of cases, as we think about H.R. 1, which is a very helpful voting bill, H.R. 4, much more comprehensive, that also speaks to the issue of being able to vote, doing the calculus, providing the analysis, federal government supplementing local districts to be able to make sure they have everything they need to be able to cast that vote. It is sad that our majority leader in the Senate has not been responsive along those lines, has said that his people, and as I quote the terms he utilized, have not said to him that we need to repair the Voting Rights Act because of the things that it's done to be helpful, or even properly quote the uh, Shelby decision uh, as it came out of the Supreme Court and the terms in which it should be addressed. So uh, our hope uh, is that they'll wake up but right now, uh, it's been in what people become to commonly refer to it as in a stack of other important bills to civil rights protections and voting rights protections than what they referred to as Mitch's graveyard, <laughs> named in honor yeah. of Mitch McConnell, of course, our majority leader. Yeah, yeah. It's very frustrating not to see good, useful, important legislation <laughs> Uh, just uh, not get passed uh, candidly. But I'm wondering, while we wait for Congress to do its job, what actions could some of our ASA members who, you know, are professionals who work with and serve older adults, what, what sorts of actions can we do um, in our neighborhoods to make sure we have accessible and fair procedures at polling places and help people vote? Well, you know, uh, one of the things that would be helpful is just be very clear on what the policies and laws of implementation are in the area you live. What form of ID does one need to be able to take with them to the polls on election day? Where are the polling places for their friends, colleagues, people that they work with? In most cases, you can go online. Uh, most um, voting, uh, there are voting sites in most areas that will tell you the details of what you need, what you need to bring with you, what time the polls open, what time the polls close. And, and, uh, and basic issues and concerns like that. Being aware of those issues or even going to the NAACP's website at NAACP.org. We include all that information 
a nice little um, virtual map you click on. Um, when you click into each area, it tells you what you need to be able to vote, what you need to have with you on election day. And if there's early voting, where those early voting polls are for those who want to get out and get it done sooner. Um, and, and what time those polling places are open as well. So being aware of that. And then if you find there's someone in your community that perhaps does not have the photo ID, if you're in a state that requires a photo ID, help them get that photo ID prior to election day. And let me also say, I've talked to a number of people in states like South Carolina and otherwise, they spoke to the challenges particularly, again, older Americans, some of which the closest thing they have to a, um, a, a, a uh, birth certificate uh, is actually their name inscribed in the family Bible. We still have a lot of Americans in rural areas and otherwise whose family who grew up in rural areas. Uh, we're not born in a hospital, we're born at home, uh, uh, we're born in the house and with their, their parents and so forth, and very well didn't have that certified uh, copy of their birth certificate to be able to get it. Making sure you have time to order those things uh, from your state's capital so people have the tools they need to have the documentation that's going to be necessary to be able to cast that vote. Last thing I would recommend is as you're looking at that information, see what the exceptions are for retirees. Um, some states, for instance, uh, I mentioned Tennessee a little bit earlier. One of the challenges they had in Tennessee is once you hit, I believe it's 60 in Tennessee, you no longer have to go into the uh, motor vehicle office to renew uh, your photo ID or driver's license. You simply send the check along with uh, the, the information they sent it to you, and there's no picture of you on it at all. But of course, a photo ID that passes the muster to be able to be utilized uh, in the polling process has to have that picture on it as well. So those details can be very important, and knowing those details will be very helpful, again, for us to work together to make sure that every single American is able to cast that unfettered vote and have that vote counted. Hillary, thank you for those practical tips. And I also want to thank you for joining us on Leverage. Hillary Shelton, the director of the NAACP's Washington Bureau and senior vice president for advocacy and policy. Uh, thank you again for joining us today. Oh, it was a real honor. Thank you so much for having me. I wanted to thank everyone for joining us on this first episode of Leverage. Leanne, thanks for being part of the roundtable. Absolutely. Thanks. And I know uh, we're going to have such a good time really elevating these issues. So we hope you stay tuned to Leverage and you download new episodes in the coming weeks. Thanks, everyone. Bye.